Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 17. Now immediately you think, well, that's a different message, isn't it? That's not a message of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Oh, yes, it is. It is what Paul would be preaching into the future. These are years into the future. And the message of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ is still the message to preach. It is still what is changing the world. And when Paul faces the crowds, I mean, you remember, Paul would go someplace and he'd start to preach and there'd be one of two things and sometimes even two of two things. There'd be a riot or a revival. And sometimes there'd be both. Uh, They'd run him out of town, but there'd be a church left when he was run out of town. And that's just the way Paul's life was at that time. Uh, And here we come to chapter 17. And Paul and Silas had in in the previous chapter, just let me set the stage for you. They had been imprisoned, remember, and the jailer was converted. And Paul and Silas were escorted escorted out of Philippi, uh, basically being begged by the civic leaders, leave us, leave us, because Paul was a Roman citizen and they had done bad things to Paul, which they were not allowed to do to a Roman citizen. So out of town they go. And now they're headed south toward the city of Thessalonica. Okay, and that's where we pick up chapter 17. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read from the Word of God? Heavenly Father, open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might see and understand. Not just see the printed Word here, Lord, but that it would penetrate into the inner reaches of our hearts and our minds, that it would change us and conform us to the likeness of your Son. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. So Acts 17, and I'll read the first 15 verses. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, and that would be the the Judaizers who kind of followed Paul around, became jealous and taking along some uh, wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. 
But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating, stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. This is God's inspired word for us today. Please be seated. Now we're going to just stay in Acts 17 this morning. Now the journey south is about a journey of about 100 miles from when they left um, Philippi down to Thessalonica. And it was uh, facilitated by the Romans. You know, the Romans were great builders, and they built these roads all over the kingdom, about 40 uh, feet across. I think the standard was enough for two chariots to go side by side down the roads. And they policed them pretty well, so they were relatively free of bandits and marauders and things like that. So Paul and Silas can, can basically travel this uh, 100-mile distance without any worry. Well, they arrived at Thessalonica, and as was Paul's practice, the first thing he does is head to the synagogue. Now, we're going to make an assumption here that it was a day when the synagogue was gathering, one of the Sabbaths. And we've seen Paul do this many times, and it was a natural place for people to go, to gather, to worship those who believed in the Old Testament. Uh, and, And it perhaps needs to be underlined here that Paul, even at this time, is still going to the synagogues even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Even his message is to go out to the Gentiles. He still stops by the synagogue uh, whenever he has a a chance um, because um, it's an easy opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And, And you'll see what I mean in just a few moments there. Well, when they get to town, they need a place to stay. And from uh, verses 5 and 6 there, we get the idea that he stayed in the house of a man named Jason. And Jason was simply uh, being kind and compassionate at this time. But over the course of this month, it appears that Jason and his family and some friends were converted by Paul staying there. Not simply his presence, but by talking with Paul, interacting, perhaps hearing him at the synagogue, uh, preach the gospel of Christ. And while they were here, uh, Paul and Silas also needed something to do to support themselves. Now, it doesn't say here, but uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians lays it out that that's where he became a tent maker. And that's how we get the tent making ministry. Paul would, would work making tents, but he would also use that to support himself so that he could then preach the gospel. Because he states very clearly, we did not want to be a burden to anyone. Paul did not want to think that he was just there uh, to to speak and to take an offering and then to move to the next town and to do the same thing, making himself rich in the process. But it's the synagogue here that Luke focuses on. Luke is the author of Acts. And these three successive Sabbaths. Now, the synagogue in the first century had a very, um, uh, very, in a sense, structured liturgy. When you went in, there were certain things that every synagogue did, and then a couple things that might be thrown in according to the uh, personality of each city and each synagogue. They met on very specific days. They had a specific type of liturgy. Scripture was read. Scripture was preached. It was proclaimed. It was explained. Some of the synagogues, there was singing. I, I guess it would depend upon the voices of 
the people there uh, and whether they liked it. But there were strict measures were taken to ensure that if you went, uh, as example, if you went down to Coleman for the day, that the synagogue down there would be doing the same thing that they were doing here in Huntsville. Same thing in the Middle East at that time. And Paul, as a Jewish scholar, somebody who was trained under the best, Gamaliel, in, in Jerusalem, when he would show up at the synagogue, word would get out. It would be like, it'd be like, hey, Billy Graham just slipped in the last pew. Do you think you could have him preach today, Rand? I'm like, sure, let's have him. So Paul would, would come in and they'd say, that's Paul from Jerusalem. And he was trained under Gamaliel. Paul, will you come up and read the passage for today? Will you come up and explain it to us? Well, this is just like an open invitation. I mean, uh, here you are, you get the opportunity to open the word and then you get a chance to declare what is there without interruption for some time. So Paul would begin with the reading of the day, and before you know it, he was on to other readings, and before you know that, he had reached Jesus and his life and his sinfulness, sinlessness and his offering and his sacrifice and his death on the cross and the resurrection and the empty tomb. And, and imagine you're in a, in a synagogue in the first century, and you have been studying waiting for the Messiah to come and all of a sudden you begin to hear this and and things begin to click in your mind going well isn't that sounds like the guy we've been waiting for that sounds like the guy the Old Testament was pointing to Paul has just laid that out for us and many within the synagogue would believe many would come to Christ as Paul would focus on the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ well there are five things here that Luke emphasizes here in the early part of, especially in the early part of chapter 17. And the first one is, Paul explained the scriptures. He didn't come to town with a dog and pony show. He didn't come to town with any visual aids. He came to town with the scripture. And that's what he presented. He took them to the Old Testament. It's the same Old Testament that we have. And, and Paul writes, remember Paul writes to Timothy, he says, from a child you had known the sacred scriptures. You had been steeped in them and raised in them, taught them by your mother and your grandmother. He's talking about the Old Testament. You know these truths. Those 39 books that by God's inspiration have been given to us, that forms the foundation of all that Paul would preach. So Luke gives us four words to explain what Paul did. And, and, and they're very Technical words. They don't seem like they're technical words, but in classical Greek and the way that they're used, they're very technical words. Reasoned, explained, he gave evidence, and he proclaimed. And there's a particular meaning behind each one and a reason why he uses this. So these four words suggest these things. It was a reasoning process. Paul used deduction. He used a logical process of argumentation involving premises that he would put out and then conclusions that he would reach. He would gather evidence. He would marshal his arguments. He would answer counter questions as they came, going back and forth. He was proclaiming in the same sense that an ambassador would proclaim. Remember, he says later in Corinthians, we're ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador speaks for whom? The king. The president, when he opens his mouth, it's as if the king is speaking at that time. 
He spoke as a messenger, as an angel from God, the word of truth in a variety of ways. He did all this in order to bring the word of God to the hearts and the souls and the minds of his hearers and to address his culture. Remember, Paul is not just um, standing apart from culture. He is in the midst of a world which is changing drastically because of the gospel. So the gospel is really countercultural. Just think of, of, of a couple of the things that came to the first century when Christianity would come. In the Roman world, uh, I'm dad, and uh, my wife gives birth to a baby, and I don't like the looks of it. So what do we do? Out on the curb. Okay? Um, Christians were the ones who started to come by and pick up those children and take them to their own homes and raise them. What about the treatment of women? Before Christianity came along, women were owned basically they they had no rights and it is christianity that brings these things to women that's just two examples of the countercultural message of jesus christ and of christianity into the first century so you get the impression here that as luke writes about what paul is doing that he is he is feverishly proclaiming these things um i think it was um One of the reformers who said, preach as a dying man to dying men. Just think about that. You come to a room where someone is dying, they're not going to live long. What do they need to hear? Preach to them as if they're dying. And that's 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 the idea we get as Paul declares these things to the people at Thessalonica. So what did Paul preach to them? Obviously, everything was rooted in the Scripture. So what did he preach to them? He preached Jesus. Very simply, he preached Jesus. This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you. Now, think about it for a moment. When, uh, when, when you take a mission trip, and many of you have been on short-term mission trips or week-long or longer trips, and, and you go and you work all day, let's, let's say it's the DR, you go out and you're, you're shoveling rock or shoveling sand and moving block or you're treating patients and you're out in the hot sun all day and you come back to the compound and and you're just beat and 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 what do you do well you just kind of sit around and rehydrate and and maybe talk a little bit about what went on share some stories what do you think it would have been like to be on a mission trip with paul He's out there preaching all day, expounding, challenging people. You get back to the hotel. What's he want to talk about? Alabama football? Uh, no, he's going to talk about Jesus. You think, Paul, haven't you talked enough about him? No, not yet. Okay, why? He's my everything. He is everything. He's, it's all that we need is Jesus. And that was all that was on his mind, the focus of his heart, the goal of his life. He comes back to Jason's house. Jason's been at work all day. Paul and Silas show up after they've been out making tents or preaching the gospel. And what do they do? They talk about Jesus with Jason and his household. They become converted to Christ. Paul says what? We preach not ourselves, but Jesus and him crucified and him risen. Now, my pastor friends who are looking for a different call, they call me up and say, Randy, you know any churches that are looking? I oh, I pass on some names or something. But when they look at ads from other churches, this is the kind of things that they see. Churches want men who are innovative, progressive, 
church initiating, team building, uh, a coach, a people developer. They want somebody with strong organizational skills, relates well to fast-track commuters, able to, to design and build infrastructure, someone who can envision and create ministry delivery teams. I'm not sure what that is. Um, approachable, dynamic, uh, able to lead worship through drama, audiovisual, banners, and dance. They didn't, that wasn't part of the deal when I came here that I had to dance, okay? And, and, and you know, here at Central, we have the great opportunity to support several church plants, okay? And they, they, that takes a special individual to go and plant a church. We, we support a, a plant down in Chelsea, Alabama, Little Rock, Arkansas, Nashville, Austin, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, plus some others in other places and around the world. So we have some idea of what the skill set is needed to go and plant a church. What do you think a first century church planter ad would be? Wanted. A man full of the spirit, giftedness acknowledged by his peers, prepared to go anywhere for no compensation, must be ready to suffer and possibly die for the gospel with nowhere to call his home except heaven. Now, how many applicants are you going to get for that? A guy named Paul. Uh, beyond that, just not many. It's very different there. It's very different there. Um, but Paul went about preaching Jesus. He didn't work on ministry delivery teams. He worked on the gospel of Jesus. So what did Paul preach about Jesus? Verse 3. Explaining, giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. That's what he preached. Now, I don't believe he was like Jonah who went about Nineveh with the seven-word sermon. I think he, he added other things to that, bringing them from the Old Testament. But that was the gist of his message. It was, what, necessary for Jesus to die and to rise from the dead. Remember Luke is recalling the... Uh, uh, his story in the road to Emmaus. Okay? And you've got two guys on the road from Emmaus. They're looking sad. And, and somebody comes up behind them. And they hear footsteps. And he says, what are you talking about? And they look at him askance. Like, Don't you know what has happened? How can, how can anybody not understand what has happened? And, and there's this interchange there. And, and Jesus says to them, you foolish men. Don't you know what the scriptures teach? Don't you know what the scriptures teach? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for Christ to die and to be risen from the dead and to enter into his glory. It was necessary. It's almost the exact same words that are used here. If sins are to be forgiven, it is absolutely necessary for Christ to die. No death, no resurrection, no forgiveness of sins. This is the way it is. He is our substitute and to bear on his own body the curse of our sins and then to die in our place. Without the resurrection, there is no validation of who he was, no validation of his work, no validation of his offering, his atoning work, none of that. No validation of his words because everything that he did and everything that was prophesied about him led to his death and resurrection. No resurrection, everything else is wrong. Everything. A bunch of liars. 
The grave could not hold him. Sin could not hold him. Satan could not hold him. He is risen. And Christianity hangs and falls on the truthfulness of the physical bodily resurrection. We were talking in Sunday school this morning, and it was like you used to be able to go and say the resurrection of Christ, and everybody understood what you meant. And then along came some liberal scholars who went, well, how do you define resurrection? Is it just a personal spiritual resurrection that you experience on Easter morning? Like, no, we're talking about the physical bodily resurrection. They, they got to the tomb and it was empty. Why was it empty? Because the body that they put in had come out. New life had come and he was out. That's the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. No resurrection, we might as well go and eat the rest of the donuts, go play golf today. Because we're wasting our time if there's no resurrection. But for those of us whose lives have been changed, who've been made new creations in Christ, there's nothing sweeter than this day. Yeah, every Sunday is sweet, but Easter is somehow sweeter. The Bible tells us with good and solid evidence, good and solid evidence, Jesus rose from the dead, the tomb was empty, Peter saw him, the guys on the road to Emmaus saw him, Mary Magdalene saw him, the ten in the upper room saw him, the eleven in the upper room saw him, Thomas comes and says, what, I won't believe it unless I can stick my finger in the wounds. Jesus shows up in the room, says, okay, Thomas, and he says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God, 500 Others saw him, and many of them were still alive when these things were written. So for three Sabbath days running, Paul goes to the synagogue. He preaches the necessity of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what did he experience? Look at verse 4. This is what Paul experienced. Some of them were persuaded. Now, not everyone that we present the gospel to will believe. Not everyone that we give a good reasoned exposition of the scripture, share our hearts with them, share what Christ did in our lives. Not everyone is going to go, I believe. Some are going to go, well, that's good for you. But it doesn't really work for me. Some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. They responded to the proclamation of the gospel. And just as was normal, as we mentioned before, Paul preaches the gospel. Somebody's going to get angry. A mob is formed. They try to run him out of town. And they can't find him, so they go over to Jason's house, and they drag Jason and some friends in. He posts bail. Part of the bail is that Paul is run out of town. Paul and Silas get out of town. Why do they want him out of town? Because they're preaching the message that has turned the world upside down. Really. Yes, the necessity of Christ to die and to rise turns the world upside down. They preach the necessity of it. Well, why is that same radical truth necessary for today? Let's go back a few years from today to 1985. There was a symposium where Neil Postman, and many of us know that name as an author, he was asked to talk about the differences between... Orwell and Huxley. Orwell wrote 1984, Huxley wrote A Brave New World. If you went to high school, odds are you had to read one of those at least. And he says, Huxley's Brave New World has a populace that was oppressed by their addiction to amusement. By their addiction to amusement. 
Orwell's population was oppressed by violence and power in the government that took away all independent forms of thought. What Orwell feared was those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity or egoism. Think about that. Go into my office in the morning. How many papers can I read in the morning? All of them. Just think, I I can read almost every newspaper that's published in the world there on my computer screen. You go... Your, your guys, your, your wife sends you to the grocery store and she says, yeah, I think we'll have spaghetti tonight. Pick up some noodles and some bread and, some, and a jar of spaghetti sauce. Okay, I say this because this has happened to me. And you go to the aisle that says Italian and you stand in front of the sauce and you are paralyzed by the decision. Okay? Sauce. You know... You just you, and, and and I stood there for just the longest. People are going past me. I'm like, I, I couldn't make up a decision. I couldn't make up my mind. What kind of sauce should I have? I was overcome with the choices that I had. Too much information. It rains down upon us. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned out by too much information, too many choices, too much entertainment. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of, of what he calls the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. Huxley said in, in his second work, The Brave New World Revisited, that the civil libertarians and the rationalists who were ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. For distractions. In the brave new world, people are controlled by the infliction of pleasure on them. Orwell was pain. Huxley was pleasure. Huxley feared that what we desired would ruin us. Now I go there, and that was the old postman. He was in a symposium, and then he wrote the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Okay, that's how, how most of us know postman. But why is this radical message of the crucifixion, of his death and, and resurrection, necessary for today? Because in today's world, people are more and more convinced that their own opinions, their own entertainment, uh, their own desires carry more weight than anything else. And they don't want to be disrupted by something as drastic as the message of the necessity of Christ to die and to rise. They don't want that command of Jesus to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want that command to take their hearts captive. They want their own desires to take their hearts captive. And and they ignore important information like this. Let me give you another example. In the world of corporate America, there was a team of psychologists that got together from Florida and Illinois, and they discovered some reasons why important information doesn't make it up the chain of command in the corporate world. Okay, oh, well, how come this never got to my office? Well, because when some people hear it, they don't think it's important, or it doesn't agree with what they like, or it doesn't agree with what they think is right, so they pay no attention to it. 
And study after study reaffirm this. It doesn't agree with what I think is true. And so it seems that while now we live and work in an environment filled with information, most of it we let pass on by because it doesn't agree with my presuppositions. It causes me to think differently, and I don't like to think differently, so I just won't pay attention to those things that challenge me. So not only do they filter it out, they readily admit not wanting to engage in a discussion of things that they don't like or things that give them, have a different view than what they have. So the gospel comes into this world and it turns the self-confirming, entertainment-driven thinking of men and women on its head. First, the gospel says you need a savior because you have a problem with sin. Well, that's not something I like to hear. I don't like to hear that I have a problem, especially a problem with sin. So that's not something most people like to hear, so they don't engage in a discussion, even about that possibility. They simply ignore that fact. I'm too busy filling my head with information which is useless and entertaining myself to death. Then the gospel tells me, not only do I have a problem with sin, I need to repent of that. And believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So why should I repent of decisions I'm making today that I feel good about? You call it sin, it's just my life. I like the way I live. Why should modern men and women give any credence to words that make them think twice about their own choices? That the way that they live or the decisions they make. Then the gospel tells me that Jesus is the only way. That sin can be forgiven. And in him I can experience the new life which I was created to have. Well, by now most people shut down the message. Because they've heard too many things that they already disagree with. And they don't want to go any further. They don't want to be challenged in any other way. But each of us has a need to belong. Each of us has a need to find love. To know peace. To understand real joy. To make sense of the hurts and the sufferings that we have in this world. And to understand the reason why you are here. These things can only be answered when we deal with the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. The necessity of Christ dying and rising from the grave is life itself. He came that we may have life and have it how? In abundance. It is only when we come face to face with the truth of his death and his resurrection that we can find this life. My friends, the tomb is empty. The new message is the same message. There is no other option. The tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great opportunity we have to come here today to hear these things, to be challenged by the necessity of Christ's death. We think, couldn't you do it some other way? Couldn't you do it in some other way that would have spared your son the suffering and bearing the weight of our sin upon his person? Couldn't you do it another way? And the word is, it was necessary to do it this way. The scriptures had been talking about this, had been pointing to it. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Things were done in accordance with the scriptures. And here you have the perfect son of God. Being of the same substance, he did not equate equality with God to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a man and giving his life on a cross. But the grave could not hold him. Death could not keep him. The stone was rolled away and it was empty.
And we are here to proclaim that, to live that, and perhaps, Heavenly Father, maybe on this day for some of us to finally really understand what this is about. The tomb is empty. That means my life can be changed. If he can overcome death, he has the power to change my heart, to make me new, that I might find the reasons and, and that, that I have been struggling, that I might find the answer to the questions that I've been struggling with, Lord, that I might be made whole and new in Christ Jesus. Open our eyes and our hearts today for these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.